The Mark Stein Show. Now, here's Andrew Lawton, in for Mark. Wow. This is how bad things are. Just 100 days into Joe Biden's supposed presidency, even undocumented broadcasters are at risk of their jobs being outsourced to even less documented substitute fill-in guest hosts like myself. What was it I was announced as a few weeks ago, the Deputy Vice President Undersecretary of Canadian Affairs or some such? I assure you, the man himself, Mark Stein, will be back soon enough. But in the meantime, it is Tuesday, April 27th, 2021. As I mentioned, just over 100 days into Joe Biden's turn at the White House. And interestingly enough, that has already cemented the future of his presidency. The Associated Press sums it up. More action, less talk. Yes, the AP did a rigorous, fact-based, impartial audit of Biden's first 100 days, and they've determined that he is, quote, tugging the United States in many new directions at once, right down to its literal foundations, the concrete of its neglected bridges, as well as the racial inequities and partisan poisons tearing at the civil society. Add to that a list for dramatic action to combat climate change. Well, there you have it. He might as well just quit while he's ahead. He's already solved racial inequity. He's saving the climate. He's building bridges, both real and figurative. What more is there to do? Well, he has to take aim at the scourge that is white nationalism and extremism within the ranks of the United States government. Just yesterday, as a matter of fact, the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas announced that the DHS is doing a full review to root out violent extremism. Mayorkas said that domestic extremism is, quote, the most lethal and persistent terrorism-related threat, unquote. This is from a department that will celebrate its 20th anniversary in just a few months' time, a department that was created in the wake of a very real series of attacks on America and Americans, and quite frankly, an attack on freedom-loving people around the world. And that department now finds that not only is the real threat to the nation coming from within the country, but coming from within its own department. In which case I'd say, why on earth should we trust them to figure it out if they've been supposedly infiltrated by all of these white nationalist, neo-Nazi, domestic extremist types? And this is not unique to the DHS, by the way. This comes just a few weeks after the Department of National Defense decided to perform its own review. So we're very quickly seeing what's shaping up to be a whole-of-government investigation to find all of these domestic extremists in waiting that are littered throughout the American bureaucracy. I don't know if the Department of Fisheries or Commerce are exactly as desirable to those planning to overthrow the government, but who knows? At the rate we're going, pretty soon it'll be like Designated Survivor, where they've gone through every department, every secretary, and there's just, you know, one lone undersecretary in the Department of the Interior left who hasn't been fired as some rabid white supremacist. And it would be a lot easier to take these sorts of reviews, as they're called seriously, if they didn't come after six years of pretty much everyone on the American right being held up as a white supremacist and as an extremist. If the mainstreaming of these terms to people who just have a different position on, oh, I don't know, immigration or gender equality or whatever the case may be, if those people for the last six years were not subject to all of the very labels that are apparently what the government is 
is trying to root out from within its own midst. And I saw a quote from one former Homeland Security official, Thomas Warrick, who said, those of us who know the DHS well know that the number of problematic officers is small, but even a small number is corrosive and undermines the trust of the American people and the entire mission of the department and its components. And when I hear something like that, I actually can't help but wonder if a lot of this is just about trying to create a threat create a threat to justify whatever it is that the department wants to do. And in that case, the so-called insurrection of January 6th, which I would remind people had only one casualty, and it was one of the protesters, Ashley Babbitt, who was killed by an officer who at this time and probably for the rest of time will remain nameless. But this has been used as the justification, as the grantor of political cover, if you will, for government departments to go through and concoct this right-wing threat that supposedly exists and has infiltrated all levels of the United States government. Well, if this is what the more action, less talk, 100 days of Biden looks like so far, I can't say I'm too eager to see what's coming in the next 100 days. Perhaps more of this. CDC recommends that pregnant people receive the COVID-19 vaccine. We know that this is a deeply personal decision, and I encourage people to talk to their doctors or primary care providers to determine what is best for them and for their baby. Pregnant people? I, I could have sworn there was another word for those people. I <clears throat> In any case... That was Dr. Rochelle Walensky of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention telling everyone that pregnant women, no, 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 sorry, pregnant people are safely able to get their COVID-19 vaccines. Now, you may think terms like that are innocuous enough, except I can guarantee you they are very deliberate in their usage. I saw one public health official somewhere on Twitter say that pregnant women are eligible for COVID vaccines, only to receive in reply a slew of condemnations for how dare you say pregnant women. You mean pregnant people, one said. You know better than to say pregnant women. This is disappointing, another said, and so on and so forth. These things used to be very fringe, but are now completely the norm. And when we talk about investigating to root out extremist sentiments that exist within government, I would say we could start with whoever thinks that saying pregnant women is just too controversial or too exclusive for doctors to utter. And now, from the land where everything is policed except crime. Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. I must confess, I'm going to invoke my guest host prerogative today and highlight a wanker copper from Her Majesty's Overseas Dominion of Ontario in Canada, from the Ontario Provincial Police. I'm not here to sit and lay a bunch of tickets. Yep. If it was something that was to continuously happen, it is an option. No, and, and, and so that is an option we can go down, and we don't want to have to go down the office with anyone, because everyone wants to enjoy themselves. It's getting nice weather. But no, we're not doing anything wrong. Yeah. Like, this isn't an organized... No, but, like, I drove by and I saw people here and they were separated, so I didn't come. Like, I drove by, like, half an hour ago. Yeah, I like, I said, it looked fine. But then we got a report called COVID-19 from public
That's all I need is your name and date of birth so I can get here. Why do you need the date of birth? No. I don't feel like I need to give my information. Those are police officers from the OPP in Peterborough County, Ontario, a beautiful part of the province, investigating what they suspect to be an illegal gathering of parents playing outdoors with their children. Apparently they were responding to three or four calls of complaints. Who knows who was bothered by seeing children play outdoors. But then the one officer said this. For some of these situations, we're being asked to call CAS to advise them as well. Are you f***ing kidding me? I know they're... Wow, so my kid's playing outside? I am. So it's, it's, it's something that we have been asked to do. So I need to make sure you guys are We're going to get CAS called because we're taking our kids out to be healthy and fresh air. So some people have a view. How is that neglect? I know it is, but I don't understand how that's neglect. Yeah, go ahead, play, do whatever you like. For some of these situations, we are being asked to call CAS to advise them. Now, CAS stands for the Children's Aid Society. It is the Ontario version of Child Protective Services. Police saying that if parents are not abiding by the provincial government's Orwellian stay-at-home order, they could be reported to the same agency to which child neglect is reported. Now, I would say that keeping your child locked up for going on 14 months without having them able to see their friends, without having them able to go to parks and play with people in the neighborhood, I would say that is in and of itself far more abusive than what these parents stand accused of doing, which is getting together outdoors in the nice weather and playing with their children. Now, the government claims it's provided no specific guidance to have parents not complying with these restrictions reported to children's services. But the OPP was unrepentant, saying in a statement to the Toronto Star, if a parent is making a decision for a child that is not consistent with what public health encourages, then we may liaise with Children's Aid Society on a case-by-case basis. It was just a few weeks back that I talked about on this very program a story in Peel Region in Ontario in which parents were being told they had to lock their children up in bedrooms and not have any communication with anyone else in the house for two weeks if one of their classmates came down with the sniffles. Now, after this was publicly acknowledged, of course, the regional health authority walked it back and said, oh, no, 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 it was just a big misunderstanding. That may or may not happen here. But as it stands, parents who bring their children outdoors when the government says stay inside are the real abusers. They're the real neglectful ones. They're the ones that public health authorities think need to be reported to children's services. It is safe to say that this officer with the Peterborough County of the OPP is your wanker copper of the week. The year is 2073, and a man and his grandkids attempt to navigate a post-apocalyptic world years after a great plague wiped out much of the population. No, this isn't a dispatch from the 53rd year of our two weeks to flatten the curve, but a glimpse at Jack London's novel, The Scarlet Plague. The Scarlet Plague is the latest addition to Mark Stein's Tales for Our Time. Tune into Stein Online nightly as Mark serializes this timely novel. Mark Stein Club members can listen to this latest tale and the entire back catalogue of nearly four dozen by going to www.steinonline.com. Welcome to the 93rd Oscars. Did you watch the Oscars on Sunday? I mean, it was like the regular Oscars, but without viewers and without jokes. So I guess it was just like the 
regular Oscars, come to think of it. Viewership fell to an all-time low this year, under 10 million people for the first time ever watching the Oscars. And it wasn't exactly surprising when you saw that the opening monologue didn't even attempt to be funny. This is MC Regina King. We are mourning the loss of so many, and I have to be honest, if things had gone differently this past week in Minneapolis, I might have traded in my heels for marching boots. Now, I know that a lot of you people at home want to reach for your remote when you feel like Hollywood is preaching to you, but as a mother of a black son, I know the fear that so many live with, and no amount of fame or fortune changes that. Okay? But tonight, we are here to celebrate. You know what? At least she's self-aware because I'm pretty sure that's when most people did, in fact, as she predicted, reach for the remote. And it didn't get any better over the remaining four minutes or so. She didn't even attempt to make a joke. I think there was a prevailing attitude of let's just get this thing over with. But it was interesting in an era in which people around the world and certainly still around the United States, depending on where they live, are sequestered in their homes because of lockdowns and restrictions, forced to contend with mask mandates, stay-at-home orders and all the like. But curiously, none of those who were watching this glitzy gala were masked. Here's how Regina King explained it. I am very proud and excited to be here. And yes, we are doing it maskless, yes. <laughs> you are probably asking, how are they able to do that? Well, think of this as a movie set. An Oscars movie with a cast of over 200 nominees. People have been vaxxed, tested, retested, socially distanced, and we are following all of the rigorous protocols that got us back to work safely. So, just like on a movie set, when we are rolling, masks off. And when we're not rolling, masks on. All right? That's how we do it. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it's okay when they do it. That's basically the thing. As she says, you just throw some cameras up and you can do whatever you want because this is a set. This isn't just a dinner. And unless that was the attempt at humor, in which case, well played, or perhaps they didn't need a joke because the whole big thing was one, but it was actually surprising how brazen it was that we can do what we want because we are celebrities. There's a church just a couple of hours from me who, like most churches in my part of the world, has been shut down yet again by the government. According to the law, just 10 people can be in the building at any one time unless... It's being used as a film set, which is the case now. A Netflix show called Umbrella Academy decided to rent out the church to film there. And are they content with just having 10 people? Well, no, the rules are a little bit different for film sets. You can have up to 50 people there as cast, plus an unlimited number of crew members. And as the government says, even places that are shut down to the rest of the world can be open to film. And when you point this out, you get a bunch of sycophants from the film industry who respond and say, well, you know what, we're safe and we get tested and we're doing all of these things, to which I say, why is no one else being given that privilege? Why can Hollywood get up there and have the Oscars because they call it a film production, but individuals can't open up their restaurants or bakeries, even if they perhaps put some cameras up in the corner and say everyone who dines here is now a cast member? 
14 months into this, the people who should be screaming and jumping up and down saying it's time to reopen have already gotten their reopening, so they don't care about the rest of us. We're supposed to just sit at home and watch celebrities talk about living their lives. Well, it is only a distant hope for most of us to be able to do the same thing. Though I should be fair, it isn't just the Oscars. Also, the elite New York City sex club called Sanctum has reopened with its Wild Orgy Masquerade, which I believe Kirsten Gillibrand says is infrastructure, if I'm not mistaken. Child care, sick days, and Wild Orgy Masquerades, although I might be wrong about uh, the child care part. On May 15th, the sex club returns with tickets fetching up to $8,000. Again, lockdowns for me, but not for the kinky. The only folks who seem to be living free these days, with the exception of a couple of states in the South and a couple of Eastern European countries, are celebrities, sex club proprietors, and of course the Chinese communists who unleashed this virus on us all. Yes, the world may still be in large part shut down, but Chinese penetration continues. There are a number of ways that a foreign adversary can seek to influence a person. Do you agree with that? Yes. Financial? Yes, that can be one. Uh, romance, you said it's another. Yes. It's Eric Swalwell's Chinese penetration of the day. National Institute of Health is flagging over 500 federally funded scientists that may have concerning ties with foreign regimes. An official tells senators the biggest concern is that scientists are hiding additional funding they receive from foreign actors. This is not just one or two American scientists feared to be under the influence of the Chinese regime, but hundreds. The threat is significant, exactly as you say. Um, we have identified over 500 scientists of concern. Uh, so far, we've reached out to institutions on over 200. Uh, each of these requires a, a tremendous amount of work to figure out what exactly has been happening. So who are these foreign governments, you might wonder? According to NIH numbers from 2020, 93% of the 189 scientists they had investigated received undisclosed funding from the Chinese regime. As Dr. Michael S. Lauer of the NIH says, more than 90 institutions are housing hundreds of scientists of concern, and the investigation's workload is weighing down. The NIH, which is supposed to be dealing with medical research, perhaps saving lives, but instead is forced to root out the infiltration of the Chinese regime. Maybe this is what the Department of Homeland Security should be looking into instead of trying to find evil, scary white supremacists on the DHS's front line. Now, this story comes just a couple of days after a Lansing, Michigan chemist was convicted of conspiracy to steal trade secrets, economic espionage, and wire fraud. According to the Department of Justice, the chemist in question, Shannon Yu, was convicted of stealing trade secrets from Coca-Cola and Eastman Chemical Company, trade secrets that cost nearly $120 million to develop and went straight to Beijing. Or over in southern Illinois, a math professor by the name of Mingqing Jiao, 59, of Makenda, fraudulently obtained $151,000 in federal grant money by concealing support he was receiving from the Chinese Politburo and a Chinese university. 
an American professor stands accused of enabling the Chinese government's efforts to corruptly benefit from U.S. research by lying about his obligations to and support from an arm of the Chinese government and a Chinese public university. Those words came from the Assistant Attorney General for the Justice Department's National Security Division. Yet even so, those two stories from just a couple of days are a drop in the bucket of what is a wide-scale national infiltration of the American Academy with science research. And it could be part of a large orchestrated plot to steal American research and send it to Beijing, or it could be something even more subversive, trying to extract American money, all the while being truly loyal to Beijing and Chairman Xi. Yet what is the United States government talking about the very same week? Well, if you listen to Secretary of State Antony Blinken, it's about how China needs to be an ally in the fight against climate change. Right now, we're falling behind. China is the largest producer and exporter of solar panels, wind turbines, batteries, electric vehicles. If we don't catch up, America will miss the chance to shape the world's climate future in a way that reflects our interests and values. Even if we do everything right at home, uh, we have to find ways to bring the rest of the world along. We have to help countries meet uh, their own climate goals, especially countries that don't have the resources to do it, to build their own resilience. You know, there was a time when that sort of neoliberal nation building would have been decried by the very people who are cheering it on right now, that the United States has to export its woke climate policy the world over. And even if you believe that that's a good idea, there's no justification for that actually working. How liberalized has China been by its participation in global institutions like the United Nations or more specifically the World Trade Organization? China's entry into the WTO has not brought it into this global liberal international order. Rather, it's given China the ability to walk all over the members of this very idealist world of which Antony Blinken, who's supposed to be America's chief diplomat, is clearly a charter member. For all the uh, disagreements and uh, tensions and challenges that we have with, with certain countries, uh, including China, we also have um, overlapping interests. And China has a strong interest in dealing with climate change itself, as do we. And the bottom line is, if our two countries can't uh, uh, do this, then um, no matter what the rest of the world does, uh, we're probably not going to succeed. So we have, an, we have an interest and an incentive in finding ways to work with China and encouraging them uh, to raise their ambitions. I was reminded in listening to that of a speech that Chairman Xi gave at the World Economic Forum just a few short months ago in which he pledged China's undying commitment to multilateralism and international institutions and all the like. We need to be resolute in championing the international rule of law and steadfast in our resolve to safeguard the international system centered around the UN and the international order based on international law. State-to-state -state relations should be coordinated and regulated through proper institutions and rules. The strong should not bully the weak, decisions should not be made by simply showing off strong muscles or waving a big fist. Multilateralism 
should not be used as pretext for acts of unilateralism. Am I alone in thinking that Chairman Xi would have made a better MC for the Oscars this year? Certainly his writer was capable of better comedy than any of the writers on this year's Oscars telecast. Obviously, he is accusing everyone else in the world implicitly of doing exactly what it is that China is doing. But the most insidious part of this is how many people are going along with it, not the least of which is American Secretary of State Antony Blinken. For all the uh, disagreements and uh, tensions and challenges that we have with, with certain countries, uh, including China, we also have um, overlapping interests. China doesn't need to be a bully anymore when the world just willingly hands over its scientific secrets, its sovereignty, its money, and its hand in friendship over climate change which is the number one way to Joe Biden's heart, not with a nice smelling strand of hair, but apparently with a dictatorial leader who claims he thinks emissions might be just a little tad too high for his liking. And all is forgiven. Doesn't take all that much to be canceled these days. Sir Isaac Newton now facing the cancel mob, according to a draft curriculum from Sheffield University that dismisses Sir Isaac as a beneficiary of colonialism. In an effort to tackle, quote, long-standing conscious and unconscious biases and challenge Eurocentric and white savior approaches to science, no white scientist can apparently be held up as model examples. No, apparently the only scientists worth celebrating are those that are taking the secrets from American universities and sending them right to Chairman Xi. But this same rationale that we can't celebrate anything that was created by a white person is at Oxford University anyway, taking a at sheet music. No, I don't mean bad music. I mean literal sheet music on sheets, which according to one busybody in Oxford's music faculty are themselves products of colonialism. This board of staff and students found that there is a white hegemony in the study of music history, and part of that is the colonialist representational system of music notation. Tal Bachman is no stranger to many of you listening in. He's been a featured guest on Song of the Week on the Mark Stein Cruise. He's a hit recording artist, songwriter, and now he's slumming it with me. But he knows music, and he knows the cult that is wokeism. In fact, he, he's written about it at Stein Online in the past. You should check it out. Tal, when classical music is somehow deemed cancel-worthy, the question that I have is, is nothing sacred? Yeah, that's correct. Well, actually, let's back up a little bit. There are certain things that are sacred. They've just replaced all the sacred things, right? I mean, I don't think it's so much that, that the wokists have obliterated sacredness as that they've they've replaced it all. So if we're talking about sort of traditional moral codes, uh, Certainly in the Jewish and Christian traditions, there's this abundance of sacred, uh, you know, uh, there, there's an abundance of sacredness. Uh, certain things are sacred, certain places are sacred, uh, acts are sacred, entities are sacred, um, aspirations are sacred, all sorts of things are sacred. Well, 
the wokists hate all of that. They, I mean, I'm calling them wokists. I, I'm assuming that's an actual term, and that I did make, I did not make that up for my Stein Online piece. But um, calling them, let's just call them wokists for now. Um, yeah, I mean, so they, 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 they have declared war on all of those traditional senses of the sacred, but in their place, they are trying to ram through other sorts of things. I know the music industry, even today, is not a complete meritocracy in the sense of lots of crappy artists will get recording contracts and lots of great artists will go by unnoticed. But nevertheless, classical music is something where the greats that we study have withstood the test of time for a reason, because these are great work. And even if there were great African or Asian composers we didn't hear from at the time, that doesn't mean that the Beethovens and the Mozarts and the Haydns were not themselves worthy of study and worthy of commemoration. Yeah. And, and in a lot of cases, people treat it as though it's a zero-sum game. You can't just study more. You have to take these ones out because we have to make room for all of these. And I'm not sure if you'd welcome a, a Beethoven comparison or not, but you know that someone 50 or 100 years right now could say, oh, you know what, we can't play that Tal Bachman guy's music. We, we've already heard too many white people from uh, that era. No, it doesn't work. Um, okay, well, I mean, I have all sorts of thoughts about this, Andrew. Um, there, And I, I don't have properly formatted <laughs> answers in my head. So um, this podcast, you know, it's supposed to be... Yeah, well, it's supposed to be like a 10 minute thing. And, and because I'm, I haven't developed the habit of editing myself as I think and speak, it probably will be two hours or something. But um, I mean, I have mixed feelings about this. Um, on the one hand, I guess I would say to kind of cut maybe to, to the end is it, there's a big part of me that, that wishes that we all maybe stop even talking about this stuff reacting to it. We've gotten very reactive. Anyone who is sane, who is aware of popular culture, but not only popular culture, um, you know, the highest of high culture and, and, and everything else, you know, everything in between. I mean, we, we've become very reactive, um, you know, where we kind of exist in a permanent state of disbelief and outrage and indignation and just doesn't make, and of course, there's the, you know, just the ever present conservative uh, complaint about leftist hypocrisy. Well, on the one hand, they say this, but then two seconds later, they say that. And we just talk and talk and complain and complain. And, you know, and it's like in the end, I'm, I think the ideal is we shut the hell up and we start acting. We do stuff. We We launch kind of power strikes, so to speak. We we create our own institutions. We stop complaining that other institutions that we didn't create and that we basically ceded to these culture destroyers are just doing what the culture destroyer co-opters wanted them to do. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of one thought I have. Like, for example, like, to just bring it back, hey, if Oxford, if you don't want to use musical notation anymore, don't do it. In fact, burn your entire university to the ground as a symbol of your white guilt in you know, acts that not only you didn't do, but never would have done. And that in most cases, not even your ancestors didn't do. You have no kin relationship to any of these crimes in many cases. 
that you're now being held responsible for and being beaten up for. But if you're, if your sense of self-loathing is, is that important to you, burn your place down, quit. Um, and the rest of us will develop our own institutions where we do, for example, use musical notation and we do appreciate the great works of music. We listen to Bach and Vivaldi, um, I'm partial to some of the French composers. Uh, but anyway, um, and we can listen to all of that kind of stuff. I mean... <laughs> yeah, you are bang on about that, that very performative aspect of this, where people say the right things, but they're not actually prepared to go all the way with it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, well, how many of these, how many of these kind of hip white administrators at these universities and the corporations that are, are just constantly accepting these, just the most absurd guilt trips being laid on them, and and kind of parroting these these kind of rote confessions of guilt, like you know, seriously. Um, you know, that, you know, I'm sorry, they're just, they're, I, I, mean, I mean, there's just so many of them. Uh, how many of them are actually firing themselves? And you, you are right about that. Taking it to its logical conclusion, you have no choice but to self-cancel or self-immolate. What was it that the Dixie Chicks decided to drop the Dixie from their name because George Floyd was killed? by a police officer and became the Chicks. And then the one that I really like, Lady Antebellum dropping the Antebellum and becoming Lady A, only to learn a couple of days later that there was a blues singer named Lady A who was a black woman herself that was concerned about her identity and everything she had worked for being now appropriated by the artist formerly known as Lady Antebellum. But you're right, eventually there's no one left standing when you do this. I mean, what's her name that I wrote that piece about for Stein Online? Jessica, is it Krug? Krug? Jessica Krug, the Jewish girl from Kansas. Yeah, I mean, you almost kind of have to give her credit because she went all the way. As I put it in that piece, I, I mean, I hate it when people quote themselves. It's like really self-aggrandizing and unbecoming. But I, but I, I mean, I, but now I'm stuck and I now I have to do it. But um, as I put it in that piece, I think she was like wokeism's first auto martyr. She she actually followed wokeist logic to the end, which is I must destroy myself. I embody a uh, horror, a kind of horrific evil because I'm not black. I know in a contemporary context anyway, when we hear of someone from the entertainment world, we conjure up an image of this social justice warrior type, because let's face it, that's what pretty fairly describes them. But but it wasn't always like that, certainly not in the music sector. I just heard an interview a few weeks back with Dee Snyder of, of Twisted Sister, in which he said that cancel culture is the new censorship. And a lot of these uh, 80s rock guys had no time for the woke nonsense that is ubiquitous today. But can we get that back? Can we go back to that area where art is really that genuine bastion of free thought? Um, uh, well, I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I mean, it kind of seems like our, I mean, it kind of seems, and maybe this is wrong, but when you look back at human history, it kind of seems like the, the default state of affairs is that one 
I don't, I want to say theology, but I, you know, one worldview predominates and it takes pains to kind of perpetuate, preserve itself and expand itself. And to do that, it, it has to kind of push back, however, uh, surgically or broadly against these, these kind of, you know, these kind of rival ideas, rival worldviews. And that every once in a while, there's, you know, it, it almost seems like an accidental lapse into toleration and free thinking. You know, like that doesn't seem to be the normal state. So, so if, <laughs> like, in other words, a state of sort of general toleration seems to be, when looked at from the perspective of world history, it seems to be a kind of like a, a way station, you know, like you, you, you kind of, you kind of cruise past it on your way to somewhere else. And then you get to that somewhere else. And then you have to live there for 80 or 300 years or a thousand years. And then things break down. And then there's sort of a fleeting moment there where you can have movies like blazing saddles, or you can have, you know, you can have the iron maidens and you can have on the music side and you can have also, I mean, you can have a kind of an explosion of creativity and free thinking and experimentation, which, which certainly by today's standards is not particularly toxic. I mean, I'm not saying that there's no toxicity, but but it ain't nothing like we got now. Now, one bit of respite from the mayhem, if I may plug this. Every Friday night, Tal and his father, Canadian rock legend Randy Bachman, also, by the way, a Mark Stein Show alumnus, do a live show on YouTube. They call it the Friday Night Train Racks, but they do a lot of really great stuff. Lots of fun to watch. You started doing this when we were all still in that two weeks to flatten the curve mindset. And the sense I got from those early ones is that this was just going to be this fun thing you do a couple of weeks, which has now become quite a, a significant thing that you and Randy do every single week. And I know I always look forward to it. So do a lot of other people. I, I mean, how do musicians come back from this? A lot of people assume that musicians are, are just rolling in cash, and certainly some are, but but if they're not touring, they're not making money, and this has now been 14 months, uh, per, potentially even longer. I, I mean, do you think this is coming back, first off? Yeah, well, uh, my dad and I and every other musician that we know lost all of their gigs last year, of course, as you can imagine. Um, I mean, I, <clears throat> yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't know. I looked into through, through proxies, but I looked into us doing a tour of Florida, but I don't even think Florida is, is welcoming kind of touring acts yet. So yeah, I mean, it's financially pretty devastating. I mean, as, as a musician, I mean, if you have even one or two hits, you can tour pretty much for the rest of your life on those one or two hits. People are always going to come out. And I mean, like Jimmy Buffett, like the guy makes an absolute fortune. I actually I talked to Mark about Jimmy Buffett one day. Was, we kind of had a laugh over it because the guys had like one and a half hits. You know, it was like, right? Like, <laughs> Hang on, what's the half? Well, Cheeseburger oh, in Paradise okay, okay. was, you know, I mean, I guess that was a hit. Um, I'm not taking anything away from him. In fact, at the opposite, because he had Margaritaville, which was kind of like, <laughs> I didn't think this this conversation was going to get into Jimmy Buffett. But anyway, you have like, say this one guy, Margaritaville, which is kind of more than a song. It kind of like is a whole kind of lifestyle packaged into that little three minute song. And then you have Cheeseburger in Paradise. The guys toured off of it for half a century and made tens of millions of dollars. He's so clever with the way that he's done that. But, you know, so you wipe that out. If like me and my dad, you know, you're not as clever as, 
Jimmy Buffett, which we aren't, um, um, and you lose all your gigs, you're you're losing uh, somewhere between most and all of your annual income, um, unless you have maybe royalties coming in. But you know, you get a couple of bad divorces under your belt, and most musicians aren't even seeing most of their royalties. Singer-songwriter Tal Bachman. You can also catch Tal on the upcoming Mark Stein Cruise in the Mediterranean. Details at MarkSteinCruise.com. And also some great columns coming up at SteinOnline.com. Tal, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That does it for me. You will be back to full strength, supercharged, official Mark Stein show host Mark Stein himself in just a couple of days. So that does it for me. We'll see you next time. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.